Gary. And good morning again, everybody. Here we are for day, I don't know, day umpty squat here in quarantine land. And uh, I'm thankful that you've chosen again to join us today. Uh, did you have a favorite pair of shoes when you were growing up? For me, this is a very, a very simple question to answer. I absolutely did. It was probably at the time I was in seventh, eighth grade, around 1987, 1988. Every guy just about had a pair of leather, red and black high tops called Air Jordans. They came in red and black. They came in blue and black. They came in red, white, and black. But, but all of us guys and some of the ladies loved our Air Jordans. And really, it was for one and one reason only. This guy named Michael Jordan. Now, growing up at that time, what this guy could do when you gave him a basketball was unbelievable. He had hang time, unlike anything we had ever seen, at least not in my lifetime. Uh, he could do slam dunks, it seemed like, from anywhere. He won that slam dunk competition just about every single year. And Nike recognized this. So they started paying this guy, at the time, half a million dollars a year to be the endorser for this particular brand of shoe. Now, as it turns out, Michael Jordan, this is some 30 years later, is still paid $60 million a year because of that shoe. And he's worth about $2.1 billion. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why would Nike be willing to pay so much? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because this guy is selling their shoes. This guy is driving up the market price of Nike stock. And as it turns out, celebrity endorsers are a really good way to go. I was researching this just a little bit, and I found this, this uh, short uh, paragraph from Wikipedia. It says that marketers use celebrity endorsers in hopes that the positive images of the celebrity endorser of the brand will also be passed on to the products of the brand image associated with the celebrities. Celebrities have mass communication skills which can attract people's attention and is helpful in reaching a wider audience to raise their awareness towards a certain organization or an issue, thus making celebrities effective. See, these high-dollar endorsements really help these companies in selling what they need to sell. Well, what we're going to see this morning is, in a sense, a type of celebrity endorsement. The celebrity was a celebrity among the ancient Hebrews. It was a man that they had heard of for generations, thousands of years, and literally this man was shrouded in mystery. The man is named Melchizedek, and we learn about him way back in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he was a man that the patriarch of the Hebrews, Abraham, I had paid tithes to. He received a blessing from Melchizedek. And this morning, what I would like to do, actually, before we even go to the main text this morning of Hebrews chapter 7, is just take a moment uh, and peer backwards and look at this man in his context when he first appears in the book of Genesis. See, we're first introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Let me just give a little bit of context. Abraham, 
uh, had gone out and he had literally slaughtered some bad kings that were around in that time. He'd gone out. He had defeated them. He'd gotten back his friend and relative Lot. And as he's returning back, two kings renounce to meet him, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And these two kings, they come out to meet him. They, we pick it up now in uh, Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 17. And we read there, after his return from the defeat of Kerdorlomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet, to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Because this man, this man that we're introduced to, is a priest. And he came from a line that had worshipped, as the text says, the one true God, the God Most High. Now, keep in mind, this predates the birth of the Jewish nation. This, this predates the time of the law and the Ten Commandments and all of that. And yet here we have a man who was worshipping the one true God. Somehow between the time Noah stepped off the ark after the flood into this present time, the one true God was still revealing himself to man. And then about a thousand years after this, there's another reference to Melchizedek in the, in the book of Psalms. This is a messianic psalm. It was written by David looking forward to the coming Messiah. And about that Messiah, he says this in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the coming Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean exactly? Because this brings us another thousand years into the time of the New Testament where we're going to get a fuller exposition as to the meaning of this psalm in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, 
paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You may be seated. So this morning we're continuing on in this book of Hebrews. It was a letter written by the author to encourage a group of people that he saw were about to undergo a pretty severe persecution. This group of Jews, they were going to be chastised. They were a group that was not necessarily maturing like he believed they should. And this morning, we are going to do some deep diving. I know that was a pretty lengthy introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. But we're going to be diving deeply into this connection between this man of mystery in the book of Genesis, this man Melchizedek, on into the New Testament, now drawing comparisons uh, from Melchizedek to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'd like to go about it this way. First, we're going to talk about, well, what's so important about Melchizedek? Five facts there that are related to Jesus Christ. And then we'll talk about the superiority of Melchizedek to another hero among the Jews, Abraham. And in that section of scriptures, verses 4 through 10, we'll also see how the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the Jewish priesthood. And then finally, we'll draw some applications out of this. We'll talk about the pursuit of righteousness and the result of peace. We'll talk about being a thinking Christian. There's actually a really strong call to think in this passage. And finally, we'll talk about using and not abusing the Old Testament. So that's the direction we're going to be taking this morning. And uh, we, we see first that there's these connections between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. There's parallels. And the first one I want to note is that he was a king priest. We actually see this in uh, verses 1 and 2 of what we just read. And this has come up before, but Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek, Melcho means king, uh, Zadek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. And in addition to that, he's called the king of Salem. And you may have heard the, the Hebrew term shalom before. It means peace. Uh, the, the S and the sh sound are actually the same Jewish letter. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. By the way, the word Salem, many of you have been there before. That's, that was the old name for Jerusalem. So he was king over this area. And that order is significant in terms of first comes righteousness and then comes peace. We'll talk about that more at the end. Now, in this sense, Melchizedek was a prototype of Jesus Christ. He was called the king of righteousness. Jesus also brought righteousness and gave righteousness to believers. He was also called the king of peace, Jesus Christ. Uh, in Romans 5, it says that we have peace to God through Jesus Christ. So he himself was also a bringer of righteousness and peace. And secondly, Melchizedek was a blesser. He was a blesser. He blessed Abraham. Now, this is more than a, just a, a blessing you would give to somebody maybe after they would sneeze. This was a much stronger, deeper blessing. And notice back in Genesis 14, uh, verse 19, it says, And he blessed him. This is referring to Melchizedek. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. By the way, Abram was just Abraham's 
old name. It's switched over to Abraham. But Abram, he's called us this time. Blessed be Abram by God most high. This is speaking of the one true God. And Abraham accepts this blessing. And even by doing that, he was acknowledging the priestly duty of this king, Melchizedek. Jesus does the same thing. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, we see him blessing the children as they're coming up to him. And then Abraham also acknowledged his priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, by this next act. He received tithes. Melchizedek received these tithes that Abraham had offered to him. So again, Abraham, he went out, he slaughtered these kings, and he collected the spoils from those kings. And on his way back, he gave one-tenth of those to this king of Salem. Now, nothing, there was nothing in the scriptures, there were no scriptures at that time, commanding him what to do. But he simply believed it to be right. This was actually a pagan practice at the time. And when we, when we move forward into the book of Deuteronomy and things, we see that typically uh, the, the Jewish priests would not receive tithes from the spoils of war. But Abraham is acting in the way that he believes to be right towards this man who is the priest of the Most High God. By the way, we really don't know how Melchizedek came by his knowledge of God. But God was revealing himself to those even before he revealed himself to Abraham. There's a fourth important, uh, important fact about Melchizedek. It says that he had a significant name. Action chapter 7, verse 2. It says, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. It says he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So he has this very significant name. Uh, again, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, goes right along with references to Jesus Christ. And then finally, Melchizedek had a significant, albeit an unknown, family history. And this is an interesting point, really interesting. Uh, we see it in verse 3. It says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what in the world is going on here? Now, this had led some people to believe that perhaps Melchizedek was more like an angelic sort of a, a being. Uh, and, and some had believed, well, maybe he was actually a theophany. If you remember the word theophany, it's an appearance of God. The, the burning bush, for example, was a theophany. Uh, however, some had thought, is this some kind of appearance of Christ in this person of Melchizedek? But see, there's problems with that. One, it says in, in, in the text today that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We saw that in Psalm 110. Well, how could he be a priest in the order of himself? So that doesn't really add up. Uh, neither does the angelic piece, because nowhere in the scriptures does it indicate that Melchizedek was some kind of an angelic being. Which leads me to the question, well, well, then what does this mean? I mean, it seems like he's this eternal being. And this is what, this is what we really have to, to tune into here. Now, now listen carefully, because this is outside of our normal context. The author of Hebrews is applying, and listen very carefully, he's applying literarily things about Melchizedek to Jesus Christ, literally. 
So literarily, in the literature, in the scriptures, it makes no mention of Melchizedek's genealogy, his family, his birth, his death. It doesn't say anything about those things. Uh, it, it's just not there. And then the parallel is made to Christ. That to Christ, it was literally true that Jesus Christ was eternal. I like the way one commentator puts this, uh, a man by the name of Constable. He says, the first priest mentioned in Scripture had no known parents. And remember, Gen Genesis is a book jam-packed with genealogies to show people's importance. No known parents, without father, without mother, or children, without genealogy. And no known birth, beginning of days, or death, end of life. In this, too, Melchizedek represented the eternal Son of God. So again, what was literally true that he had no family because it wasn't mentioned in the book of Genesis is applied literally to the person of Jesus Christ here in Hebrews chapter 7. So then that fifth part was that he has no significant, unusual, um, he's got an unknown family history which made him very significant in terms of his family. So, I want to go on then to this next set of verses. These are all important facts and parallels the author's making between Melchizedek and Christ. Then we move on to verses 4 through 10, where the author is going to show that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham and that his, his priesthood was also superior to that of the Jews. So we step back in at verse 4 and we read this. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So here's the point. The Jews really love their history. They really love their patriarch Abraham. So the author is showing that, look, this man Abraham, who you so greatly esteem, was, was paying a tithe to this man Melchizedek. And one of the big questions here is, is why did Abraham pay tithes to Melchizedek? And then verses 5 and 6 get into this. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So what are these verses saying? You know, the descendants of Levi, this is where we get the priests. They were from the line of, of Levi, and more specifically, the grandson of Levi, Aaron. He established what was called the Aaronic priesthood. So Melchizedek didn't receive tithes because of his descent. See, the priests uh, were genetically priests. Their genealogy allowed them to become priests. However, Melchizedek had, so, had no such descent. He didn't come from this line Levitically. He didn't come to his priesthood because he was a Levite. He came to his priesthood personally. It wasn't because of any external factors. And then verse 7, it says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So again, because Abraham received the blessing from Melchizedek, that's establishing that he was inferior to the one who was superior. And then finally, in these last verses, uh, in verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified 
that he lives. Now, the text there is saying that because his death is not recorded, literarily, it doesn't mean that at some point he didn't die, but literarily he did not die because the death was not recorded, whereas Abraham and Aaron and all of them died. Then getting to verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, this is a really odd way to say it, in my opinion, but what the text is saying there was because Abraham would ultimately spawn Levi. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had his 12 sons. One of them was Levi. That Levi, in a sense, was presence. He was present there in the loins of Abraham. That is to say that from Abraham's loins, ultimately, Levi would come about. And in that sense, he was also there paying tithes to this man, Melchizedek. So let me just, let me just sum this up. Uh, so you have this man, Melchizedek. And uh, he was a priest outside of the Jewish order. He really transcended the Jewish priesthood because he came before them. It had not yet been established. In a similar way, you've got Jesus, also a priest, also not a priest only to the Jews, again, transcending Judaism. You've got Melchizedek as this king of righteousness. Uh, and then again, you've got Jesus who purchased righteousness on the cross. Melchizedek was a king of peace. Jesus was the prince of peace who was going to usher in a kingdom of universal peace. And then Melchizedek, because he had no record of his family, his birth, his death, in that sense was literally internal, eternal as Jesus, uh, who was literally eternal, no beginning, and went on to live forever. So Jesus was preluded in the Old Testament by this man named Melchizedek, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Christ who was to come. So I want to make three applications from what we just read. Um, and I want to start out with this one. Pursue righteousness and get peace. Pursue righteousness and get peace. And this is what we see in the name of Melchizedek. First came righteousness, then came peace. Now, we're fortunate as Christians that we gain righteousness by what Jesus has done for us. We actually receive this thing called imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that was, it's as though it was extracted from Christ and put in us. But the thing is, we don't always live as though we have this righteousness. We take things onto ourselves. We try to perform. Uh, and when we do that, when we lose sight of the righteousness that we have, we don't live up to it, and we try to do it our own way, the result is a loss of peace. Because you wonder, well, if I've got this righteousness, why don't I always experience peace? Well, it's because we're oftentimes pursuing things our own way. You saw that video of Jody uh, back when she was 10 years old trying to do it her own way. And it, did anything look peaceful about the way she went about that? No. We often don't live up to this righteousness. We often are afraid to lean on God the way we should. And this word for uh, peace, this Hebrew word shalom, it means an unending security an uninterrupted rest and a complete calmness. And when you read that, you think, well, who wouldn't want some of that? So here's what I would challenge you to do. Tomorrow when you wake up, whatever that thing is that's nagging at you, 
Uh, whatever that thing is that's really bothering you, and I'm sure there's ample opportunity given the world we're living in right now, give that to God. Focus on giving that to God. Ask God to help bear that burden. Actually, ask God to bear that burden altogether. And then when thoughts of that start coming up during the day, remind yourself, I gave that to God. I gave that to God. Remind yourself of that when it starts to rob you of your peace. Uh, focus on the security that you have in Christ and in God's sovereign control of all things. And then secondly, be a thinking Christian. Uh, be a thinking Christian. There's a very interesting word that pops up in this text. Actually, at the very beginning of verse 4, the writer of Hebrews says, See, uh, it's the word theoreo, and it means observe and perceive something. It's, it's a command, it's an imperative, and it means to think. He's calling those Hebrews who are having trouble maturing to think deeply about what he was about to share with them, this connection with Melchizedek. And there's something there for us as well. Uh, there are times when we go too far in making Christianity solely about how we are feeling. But Christ commands us in the New Testament not only to love God with all our heart, but to love God with all of our minds as well. There's a book uh, called Think that was written by John Piper. And in that book, he says this, we observe carefully, we ask questions, and we work hard with our minds to try to understand, the, to try to answer the questions. And we weave the answers into an ever more extensive fabric of understanding that helps us live lives of love to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I grew up in an environment uh, where in many ways questions were discouraged. And I always sort of uh, resented that. I believe we should always be asking questions, questions of God, questions of the scriptures, and not just give in to simple, easy answers. Uh, pursue those answers. Use your mind. Apply your mind to the text and to life. And by the way, if I can help you in any way with that, I'm happy to. You know, that's, that's why I get paid the big bucks, okay? To try to help you out in this area in any way I can. And then finally, use but don't abuse the Old Testament. Use but don't abuse the Old Testament. You know, our, our Bibles are divided into two main sections. There's an Old Testament there's a New Testament, but I want to remind you that we only have one Bible. It may have two Testaments, but we have one Bible. The entire Bible uh, is, is fully inspired by our, by our Lord. Now, it's important to go to the Old Testament. It's important to understand God from the Old Testament. But we can easily make some mistakes when we start reading the Old Testament. I think one of the most common mistakes we make is that we start trying to read the United States of America into the text of the Old Testament. And this happens quite a bit. As a matter of fact, most of us at some point have probably done this. I know I have it at one point. Uh, there's a verse for, um, <coughs> excuse me, there's a verse for example, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Uh, and it says this, for those of you who don't know it, uh, it, it reads, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will hear their land, that I will hear, um, I will hear their prayers and heal their land. Now, this is the way the sermon usually goes that accompanies this verse. If America will just turn to God, as a matter of fact, if America would just return to God, 
then once again we will enjoy God's blessing. Now see, there's some problems with that. Because exactly what point in America's history are you saying we need to return to? Uh, this book was written to Israelites. It was actually uh, written to Israelites who were returning to their homeland from exile. The land had been decimated. The crops had been decimated. And this is a clear call from God to the Israelites with whom he was in a very special covenant at that time to say, when you pray to me, when you seek my face, when you turn from your wicked ways, which, by the way, got you into exile to begin with, I will heal your land. This isn't intended to be a figurative sort of meaning that we can apply to the United States today. As a matter of fact, you get into real problems when you start applying this to the United States. It actually leads you into a prosperity gospel kind of thinking about the United States. Uh, Russell Moore, he heads up the, um, uh, the, relig the um, Re Religious Liberty Center for the Southern Baptists. Uh, he says this about uh, using this passage uh, this way. He says, when we apply texts like this to the nation, apart from the story of Scripture, we do precisely what the prosperity gospel preachers do. The message is that those who obey God's word will abound with money and health, while those who disobey will face poverty and illness. Uh, and, and this just doesn't work, because some of the greatest saints in the New Testament died very painful deaths. So again, get into the Old Testament, understand God, uh, an expanded view of God from what the Old Testament has to say, but be very careful. Don't read the United States. Don't read these nations into the text of the Old Testament. So to put this all together, think deeply about our peace-giving Savior, Jesus Christ. Think deeply about our peace-giving Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare for communion, I would ask you now to uh, enter a time of prayer with me. Please pray with me. We serve you, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would never cease to wonder about you and your truth. I pray, God, that we would never cease to wonder about the salvation that has been made available to us because of the sacrifice that you have made. Lord, I'm so thankful that you bring us righteousness. You bring us peace. And God, I pray that we would evermore think more and more deeply about your truth, that we'd never get stagnant, that we would never uh, get to a place where we feel like, okay, we've already done the hard work. Now we can stop growing. Lord, I pray that we would never fall into that trap. I pray that you would grow us. I pray, God, that through your word and through Hebrews chapter 7, you would take us into deeper truths about yourself. I pray that now as we go into this most sacred act that you yourself have ordained, that there in the privacy and, and in, the, in some ways the seclusion and solitude of, of where we are right now in our homes, we would still have a strong sense of community with you and with each other. And that we would think about the world that is to come that we would think about that meal that someday we are going to partake in with you in the glory of heaven, with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is just a, such a, a picture, a small picture of that. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.
as we prepare to take uh, communion together today, I'd like to go back and think about what we, what we just looked at in this passage of Hebrews chapter 7 and meditate for a moment on these truths that we have a priest who is now with the Father in the heavens who is looking out for us now interceding for us and I pray that you would understand more deeply the righteousness that we have received from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That when the Father looks down on us, he sees not the bad stuff that we've done, not our past, but he sees the righteousness of his own Son, Jesus Christ. I want to read a section of Scripture. This is from 1 Corinthians uh, this is the instructions that Paul gave the people concerning the Lord's Supper. Starting at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I pray that you're going to have a wonderful Sunday, that you're going to have a great week. Uh, we will continue to keep you informed as to when maybe we'll start meeting again. The question still lingers out there. Uh, so be looking for our communications. Until then, peace be to you. Uh, we'll see you soon. Take care.